Welcome to episode 51 of The Photo Show, uh, back from uh, our joint, va- well not joint, but back from each of our vacations, <laughs> right Kai? That's right, yeah. yeah. No, we weren't, we were not in the same state even, so no. <laughs> it was definitely not a joint vacation, yeah. Uh, well, uh, our guests are Alyssa Rivera and BJ Lillis, and we recorded with them at the Museum of Sex, which uh, was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and um, you know, of course if people have gone by and seen the gift shop and everything, that's one thing, but uh then you wander inside. We we got a, a special tour from Melissa. She gave us the uh, VIP tour where we went up like back stairs that other people don't get to see, I guess. But um, it was kind of incredible to see the types of shows that um, are going on there. And I think it's something to, to keep on everyone's radar. Yeah. Uh, Lissa mentions during the episode that uh, they were um, maybe by vice. I'm not sure, but they were called sort of the, the new hipster kind of museum. And Beyond that point, I, I think what um, what people should know is they're doing serious shows. I mean, they're doing shows that are really examining our culture and in, in regards to the way we think about uh, gender and sexuality. And there was a lot of good stuff going on in there. Yeah, I think for non-New Yorkers who, or who haven't gone there, or part of why, you know, maybe we have an idea in the back of our head of what's going on there is there's these, uh, there's these ads on the subway. And a lot for a while, there's like these kind of like silly ads of... Uh, you know, some woman jumping on a giant boob or whatever. And like, okay, you right. Know, museum of sex. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and so I was actually, I was genuinely surprised by the quality of the work in the exhibition uh, that Lisa had put on up there. Yeah. And because of, I think, perception and those kinds of ads, it, it actually has the ability to attract whole new audiences who also, you know, will be surprised to see the, the actual work uh, going yeah. on in there, which is great. Of course, we, we, we spoke with Lissa and BJ uh, at the height of her show, which was getting a lot of great press at the time, uh, Beautiful Boy. And, you know, the show has come down since, but I think she did mention it was traveling, didn't she? Uh, I, or yeah, she had another version of it going up, I think in Chicago, she mentions on the show and, or maybe it wasn't Chicago. Maybe oh it was boy. Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You'll you hear know, it in the show. <laughs> we're just showing our uh, New York bias. That's it's right. Like, eh, somewhere out West. Yeah. Out West somewhere in the, in the hinterlands. Yeah. And, uh, she's uh, also got the Magnum, uh, portfolio award, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that's actually officially called. And, uh, that, that, you know, I, expect we're going to be hearing about and seeing those images for a while right and it was uh it was actually nice to have bj lillis on with her to talk about the the this this very interesting and creative relationship that they have you know one as the the photographer the artist and the other as the muse and the model and how they each embrace that role yeah absolutely and you know it the funny thing was is uh just last week um when I was in North Carolina visiting my mother, I picked up some books that I had in storage for a long time. And one of them was uh, Through Another Lens. And it's uh, Karis talking about her time with Edward Weston. Mm. And it also made me think about, uh, you know, uh, BJ and this idea of being a muse and her talking about what it was like to be photographed and trying to participate in that process. And, uh, yeah, there's there's something to that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, we have a great conversation about that. Uh, so anyway, Kai, you um, last time we spoke, you were out in uh, Santa Fe, and then you made your way back to North Carolina, right? Yeah, uh, visiting family in both places, and uh, of course, Santa Fe, uh, you know, has its art scene, and um, you know, Canyon Road. If people haven't been out there. 
And it just reminded me once again just how diverse this uh, art world and photography world is. I mean, I saw many beautiful landscape photographs and photographs of wildlife and things like that that are eloquently done. You know, they're just beautiful, but uh, also you know, held no interest for me, which is, you know, it's just, just a, another reminder of that, right? Yeah. You know, I was, of course, I was in uh, Alaska and I had a similar experience. You know, I'm o- overwhelmed by the landscape, the beauty of the landscape, the incredible landscape. But then also, you know, looking at the photos I took and thinking, yeah, okay, that, that's a pretty one. <laughs> that That's yeah. a pretty one. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's not even... Uh, you know, even old Ansel Adams out there wandering <laughs> around and climbing up mountains, you know, at a certain point, you know, of course, he was working towards, you know, Sierra Club propaganda and all of that and trying to get people more aware of the natural world. But yeah, when it's just, you know, the beauty and the overwhelming beauty of nature, it's hard to add more to it other than, you know, mm-hmm. dark, darkened skies and popping yeah. clouds. And yes, and uh, I look, I think it I would be kind of terrified to move out there and try to find something to photograph because it's you're surrounded by just this everything being beautiful and and gorgeous and you know but of course you know we've had Claudio Nolasco on and we've had Patrice Helmar on and they've lived in these beautiful landscapes and of course they they found the the thing that interested them and and I actually ran into Patrice when I was in Juneau and she gave uh you know my wife kids and I a, a great tour of Juneau and, uh, you know, the places that were uh, a bit off the beaten path. And uh, it was really uh, fantastic. And uh, it was wonderful meeting her out there. Um, but, you know, she does photograph in this incredibly rich mountainous landscape. Um, and, you know, she, she, she found what she was interested in. You know, she, she found the people and the town and the place where, you know, she grew up and, and photographed. And so I guess I, I'm hoping yeah. and imagining that's what would happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's key, though, is that she's from there. And so she has, you know, she can see beyond the the surface, like overwhelming uh, beauty of just all that fog banks rolling in. And, <laughs> and she knows, you know, what else is going on there. And can, I, I, can so draw got, that. I so got sucked into the uh, rolling fog. <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah. How good in one. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's, right? It is amazing. It's surreal. Well, uh, that's a good I'll transition to talk about uh, Claudio because uh, next Tuesday, uh, that's August 22nd, 2017, For depending on when you're listening to this, I'm going to be uh, moderating, I think is the right word, a talk with uh, Claudio Nolasco here in New York. Uh, for the work he made in Albuquerque. He actually did two bodies of work in Albuquerque, but this is the more kind of gritty urban work, for lack of a better term, called Surplus City. And it's part of the Half King photo series. So it's at the Half King Bar, which is on 23rd and corner of 23rd and 10th. And it's at seven o'clock. And uh, I'd love for people to come out and see Claudio's work. He'll have prints on the wall and a slideshow. And we're going to talk about uh, Albuquerque and these issues of what we were just talking about of like working in an urban environment and you know looking for something else. Yeah, we're going to record it for a, a photo show special, but I just want to give a, a little caveat. We don't always know what we're walking into and what the uh, recording equipment's going to be. And so, you know, if, if the quality is good enough, we'll release it. Uh, if not, we can talk about it uh, at a future show. 
You mean the quality of my my <laughs> questions and the uh, the pithiness of my remarks, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it is at a bar, so I can uh, get oiled up beforehand. That's right. <laughs> drill into Claudio with some questions. Here. That's right. And when you hear the, the levels going up and down, that's me holding a beer in one hand and a recorder in the other. <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully this won't be our only show recorded at uh, someplace interesting like the Museum of Sex. That's one nice thing about, uh, you know, being on the road, as it were, with our equipment that sometimes yeah. we are recording at SVA, sometimes at Columbia, uh, sometimes in uh, people's living rooms. Like I, I'll never forget sitting around uh, the the living room table and speaking to Susan Kazmarek for mm-hmm. hours and hours yeah. as the sun went as the sun went down. And you know, uh, it's just uh, one nice thing about podcasts is we can go out there and and find people where they are sometimes. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll offer a little teaser. You know, we also had. A great visit uh, at the Bronx Bronx Documentary Center with Michael Camber. So uh, that'll be coming up. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, again, we have Lisa Rivera and BJ Lillis and and talking a lot about uh, Beautiful Boy and their collaboration. And uh, enjoy the show, everyone. And I'll talk to you soon, Kai. Great. Here we are. We're in the office. What floor are we on, Lissa? Uh, the fifth floor. Yeah, we're on the fifth floor. Oh, did you do a sound check already? Do yes. You, okay. We're on the fifth floor of the Museum of Sex, which is, uh, we've done a lot of like uh, recordings on site at people's apartments and homes, and of course at uh, School of Visual Arts and Columbia, but this is our first time at the Museum of Sex. Maybe not the last time. We'll see. And so we're excited to be here with Lissa and BJ. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Now, we haven't yet worked it out. We, we keep trying to have uh, a record a podcast like right before someone's exhibition opens so it can be like part <laughs> of the, you know, let's get people out to go see the show. And we have been mentioning your show for the last two episodes in the preamble introduction. But um, unfortunately, by the time most people listen to this, or definitely your show is closing next week, right? Yes, but they could always go to Cleveland because <laughs> it's going to <laughs> Cleveland after this. So if uh-huh. you... Really want to see it. It's in Cleveland. Excellent. <laughs> and where is it going to be in Cleveland? Uh, at the Cleveland Print Room. Nice. Of course, so the name of the exhibition is Beautiful Boy, right? And uh, it's pretty obvious from the photographs where that title came from. But do you want to talk about how you came about with even coming up with that as like the title to talk about the work? Yeah, you know, I was looking for something that would make people think that um, could mean a lot of different things but for me it was about getting the opportunity as a woman to like experience the beauty of my partner and to also like question beauty and how beauty is constructed and the language of of beauty itself and also you know sometimes people will look at it and they'll be like oh I'm attracted to BJ well, I'm not attracted to BJ so it's not really about that but kind of like about bringing up those questions and also kind of like using a term that I think people have in their in their psyche or something like from the John Lennon song or there's just like all different uh I think things that might bring up in someone but I don't really have a specific interpretation I'm looking for but did you settle on that pretty early on in in the making of the work or yeah I I did I just wanted something you know pretty 
I just like wine something that sounded good. Yeah, of yeah. course. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> That's an important part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could have told us, oh, well, if you look on page 45 of Roland Barthes' uh, Camera Lucida, you'll see that he mentions beautiful boy, and therefore well, that's why. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there is a Jermaine Greer, like, did do a book called Beautiful Boy in the um, 90s. Uh-huh. And I'm not really fully, like, aligned with what she's talk- speaking about in that book, but I she does go into talking about being an older woman and, like, giving herself permission to look and kind of, like, looking through art history at different uh, different situations where the, um, where the male figure is being looked at, even, like, going up into um, the grunge era with, like, Kurt Cobain or something mm-hmm. like that and kind of, like, the act of looking in that sense. So it is kind of touching upon, like, that book um, to a certain extent. Mm. I also like it because it gives people a hint about my gender identity, but in some ways by saying boy and not man, it's maybe not quite as helpful a hint as it might immediately seem. So there's still a little bit of a question. Yeah. And I think like for me, like using boy, like it's kind of like the language that we use or what we're trying to do is um, more about like freedom from any kind of labels or expectations of gender or of adulthood. Um, so I think having boy like kind of like is a, another way of expressing freedom because um, as a man there are these expectations for masculinity that aren't necessarily impressed on you when you're younger and then it's, it changes as a certain point where you have to take on a new role. Um, so it's also kind of, um, it's kind of like breaking free of those associations as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, of course, a lot of uh, conversations are going on about this right now, you know, with uh, gender fluidity and, you know, multivalent ways of uh, approaching the world. And uh, something I read in the last couple of weeks, you know, someone was speaking about being in a class where... Uh, where I and I forget where I brought getting this from, but someone was speaking uh, in a class where they were learning about you know gender roles and everything, and and uh, this guy wrote raised his hand to speak back to the professor, saying like I don't know what you're talking about. I can easily identify if someone's male or female. You know, it's like it's so obvious, and because they had just been speaking about how the difference between the genders just like you know, physiologically Physically. is so, so slight. And he's like, what are you talking about? I can immediately tell blah, blah, blah. He's like, that's almost all cultural. It's just like cultural, you know, it, you know, what, what are you wearing? How are you carrying yourself? You know, uh, length of hair, all these things like just tie into how we project all these images. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I first met you uh, on the floor of APAD and I was, uh, standing at the, um, the booth for uh, Haywire Press, and I think you came by and you handed me the card because your show was coming up, and you know it was at APAD, and I I, did, I looked at it very quickly, and we were having a conversation, and I put it away, and in my mind I just thought, oh, you know, photograph of you know young woman on on a bed or something like that, I, and I didn't look at the back of the title or anything, and so I just made an assumption, and it wasn't until later when I got home and looked at the card, and then looked at the title on the back, I was like, oh, now I see, so that the title is important in a way to like because there is going to be the the quick read and then the follow-up to it right and that's a a big part of what i think is really great about the work is that it plays with people's perceptions it plays almost with the idea of which is so prevalent and kind of 
ugly in our culture of like the trick and like if some you know what gender someone really is but that you are uh some of the image really will fool you and then there are other images where it kind of goes in a different direction especially the ones where i'm more nude where the femininity has been stripped down to maybe just like one or two signifiers but then you can still see how powerful those signifiers are yeah, some of that is just pose even, right? Mm-hmm. Like body, because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, photography is so great with body language and a lot of it is just capturing these, you know, the mm-hmm. way, and the poses that we're also have seen before and seen another, even there's mm-hmm. the one of you coming out of the swimming pool with the swimming cap on, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, looks like a Vogue cover or something where you like, you immediately pick up on uh, on all of these things that are being projected, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. not just by coincidence, Lisa, because you're also very interested in, the history of photography and the history of the representation of the body and gender. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting, um, like handing out a card and then the perception that this is an image of a woman, does it make it less interesting? Because um, I think that everyone's so used to seeing images of women that we're immune to even questioning what that means or who they are. And when people realize that BJ is male, then there are all these questions that come up about who BJ is, if what are they contributing, just who they are as a person, what's their profession, that people just don't ask if it's a woman being photographed because it's just so ubiquitous to see um, women being photographed. And um, one thing that was definitely in my mind um, when taking the images is I wanted them to be really interesting and complex so it didn't matter if BJ, you know, the, I, the gender thing didn't have to be there to make it interesting, that it could be an interesting image that functioned on its own without knowing that. And then you might know that later, and that's just like an additional, yeah, it's just an additional thing. But I really was kind of like looking at how identity is constructed based off of looking at images and how photographers' identities and the images that photographers take that are in our minds come from those same desires. And um, you just kind of like like looking at the history of images back um, to the very beginning of photography, even like with daguerreotypes, like kind of looking at the body language of the daguerreotype and the idea that BJ had not seen himself in a, a proper portrait or a professional portrait before. And then BJ, um, we were both seeing BJ as... Uh, kind of being photographed for the first time in some ways and um, really like looking at the language of early photography and um, translating that language, that kind of um, newness and also kind of awkwardness and like learning how to pose and having that awkwardness and that kind of learning curve in our relationship um, to working together photographically be a part of the project, like not have it be perfect, but have that kind of element there that I really um, find interesting when I'm looking at images in a, you know, in technology and how they relate to culture. One thing that I believe you can see in the work is that there's a little bit of an arc of like maybe the beginning works where, and uh, I don't know if, I can't remember now if these photographs are in the show or not, or if they were just ones I saw online, where you start off with more simple, like it's costume and a backdrop, you know, maybe going back to the idea of even like a daguerreotype type studio where it's, you know, fabric backdrop and, and simple lighting. 
And then the scenarios get more and more complicated. And of course, the uh, the sets, or if you want to say it, like the the places you go, get more and more complicated. And uh, and that kind of grows and builds. At least it, it appears to grow and build as things go on. Was that did it naturally kind of grow that way, or or did you go back and forth with these different types of uh, representations? Uh, yeah, it was really just like for BJ and I. It's kind of like. I don't have a strict set of rules because it's so much about fluidity and desire and kind of just following what we're looking at and how that makes us want to be in the image. Like when you look at an image and it has like a certain effect on you or you see a film and then it has, um, it kind of like leaves a residue on your identity as an artist and as a human being because it's, it can be, images can be so powerful. So kind of just, having it be like an autobiography of our reactions to different images that we're seeing. And I think definitely when I started out, I was looking, I, you know, I went back to the beginning because um, I think a lot of people see these conversations about gender now as being very new and very of our time. And they are, but I feel like there have been these cyclical periods throughout history where these questions have come up. So kind of acknowledging that and looking at how these um, questions come up and how um, these different alternative ways of presenting actually become more valuable over time. So if you're like looking at cabinet card photos, you know, those, they're like five by seven um, albumin prints and they're mounted on board and you see them a lot at antique shops. They're worth like $2. A lot of them. But then if you see the odd one, then it's worth more. But at the time, that really stuck out and was maybe even a mistake. So kind of like having an eye on what's normal and what kind of fits in and then also what's anomalous or what's wrong and doesn't fit. And looking at how that creates value over time and then like looking back at how maybe the person who was a cross-dresser in a snapshot, now it's very valuable. You know, but at the time, it was probably a very, like, loaded and, you know, like something that would be not valuable at all or something to be thrown out after it was taken. So kind of, like, looking at how images function by, like, kind of looking at history. Yeah, or maybe those images would have been used somewhat for, I'm not shock value, but at least, like, for intrigue, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, there's a very famous Ouija photograph, right, of the young man getting put into the back of the wagon and mm-hmm. you know like that image has been circulating forever and of course his audience would have been you know eager to see that too just because like just like you're going to see the people who are at the uh the met ball you're also going to get to see like what's the other things that ouija's going to see because he's out there at night you know amongst mm-hmm. the underworld or something mm-hmm. like that right? or they were used as a political protest the the photographs from the the suffrage era where women dressed up as men and smoking cigars and drinking and crossing their legs and, and, and for for the value of protest for the value of shock for the value of uh, being different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh so we've been Jumping right in, but maybe we should talk about, uh, I, I've read some accounts of this online, which we'll link to your website, but um, maybe just talk about how the, the collaboration came about. Yeah, so we met, uh, we were both working at the Museum of the City of New York, and we just kind of met and became friends, and we were hanging out and talking, and I mentioned to Alyssa that I had been sort of cross-dressing or experimenting in the past, and I'd had had a kind of gender queer identity 
when I was in college and I went to a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, which was a very uh, insular environment in some ways, but also a few years ahead of the curve on gender issues. And so I was kind of exploring all of this stuff. And then I graduated and I got a job and I moved back in with my parents for a little while. And it was just, it became harder to figure it out. And I had never quite figured out what the relationship was between my clothes and my presentation and my identity or my gender identity. And I wasn't sure if I was transgender or what was going on really. And so... So it was like a transition from being in college where you were in this kind of open environment. Of course, when you go away from home, you're able to like reinvent yourself as exactly. much as possible. And now all of a sudden you're coming back to live with your parents and you're getting mm-hmm. a, you know, a professional job and now you've got mm-hmm. to make all these decisions again. Exactly. And it, and it wasn't necessarily that people wouldn't have been accepting so much as the stakes had changed. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly it felt like if I didn't really know what I was doing, I didn't really know who I was then making a big gesture of this could just became terrifying, which makes sense, I think. And Lissa basically suggested, you know, I could take your picture and it would be just fun. You could see yourself. It would take some of the pressure off of the, that decision-making, which it did, in fact. And so we did. We took some pictures and then we sort of backed off for a while And then we ended up getting together and started just photographing like mad every weekend. And most of those early photos, there is maybe a few that are still in the edit, but most of them were, we really spent a long time where I had no conception of where this could go. I thought it was all about me, you know, (laughs) I was, but, and it was in fact, and we were just kind of experimenting and playing around and having a lot of fun doing it. And then of course there was something there. And as the something there became more clear, the photo shoots became more elaborate and more interesting. And we really kind of started down the path. Yeah. Like when BJ first told me it was, it was more blunt. It was like, we were on the subway and he was like, I wear dresses at home. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, um, I was like, what kind of dresses? I was like, what would you want to wear? Like, would it be glamorous? Because in my eyes, I'm like, oh, glamour. Like, it's, I'm sure it would be like glamour and like gowns or something, but that was all my preconception. And there is a lot of playing with my conception of femininity and, and like not necessarily going into like, finding BJ's like true self, but kind of looking at the um, construction of of gender in the photos. So we were kind of like, he was like, I wear dresses at home. And then I was like, I was like, okay. I was like, um, have you ever seen like Fassbender films or like Kenneth Anger films? Like, I love that type of thing. Like I just, I basically only like queer art and I feel like I'm in drag myself. Like I was, you know, like we're just having this conversation where like I never feel like I fit into my gender, not to like take anything away from like what BJ was going through, but just to kind of like empathize and like kind of like have these discussions. And so I think um, for a long time before we even took any pictures, we're having these like philosophical conversations about gender for a long time. And that's really a, a, b- a big part of our 
process. It's like we just talk and talk all the time. And at this point, you were coworkers and friends. And and BJ was was Lisa the f- the first person that you told uh, you know after college. And I mean, it it certainly wasn't a, wasn't a secret um, mm. because in I mean I had friends at school who had who like on graduation weekend when I was walking around with my family wearing pants they were like I've never seen you wear pants before (laughs) so I was not you know I had I had gone a long way um but I definitely it had been a long time since I'd really been able to talk to someone and the amazing thing about Lissa is that she didn't have any I mean it was almost like she had no preconceived notion of what it should mean or what I should be or what it said about me or even what I was telling her that she was just like, okay, like, Mm -hmm. you know, talk like what's going on in a just totally open way, which is very rare because especially people, I mean, gender is such a sensitive thing and people have a great deal invested usually in their own gender identity. Um, that makes it, I think a difficult topic to talk about sometimes even with the most well-intentioned people and the most curious people right i know it could be it could be as as tricky as you know someone trying to talk to you about race and then you know immediately someone says well i have black friends or you know something (laughs) like that right Mm -hmm. yeah um but of course so there's there's the process that you went through of, of photographing and making photographs uh but then there's the other process of deciding to show the work right and and deciding to reveal you know very personal things about yourselves and things like mm-hmm. that. And, um, you know, what was that like and what kind of responsibility did you f- both feel about that? Or were you nervous about that? Or, you know, how did that go? It was like agony, <laughs> like in the <laughs> beginning, like we, we took tons of pictures and we didn't show anyone for a long time. And then I didn't know how BJ's parents felt about things. Cause it wasn't any, it never came up at home. And I know that he, kept things separate there, but they knew. And um, so I didn't know that if that reason was because they weren't supportive of it, I wasn't sure. So then I felt like people didn't know at work. Um, and I like had gotten this job here now and like felt like a little bit like in my outing BJ's like BJ was always comfortable with it, but I felt like this is going to change BJ's relationship at work. This is going to change BJ's relationship with the, their um, family, and we just kind of kept the relationship pretty private, so people are going to be like, I didn't know you were in a relationship with BJ. <laughs> and like, so much, I would just, much less photographing him every weekend or every spare moment, right? <laughs> yeah, and then, um, so then I felt driven, like there's a reason to do this. Like there's a reason to say these things and to, ha- and to question things in this way, and that there's that there's something important that could be come out of this. So then I like applied to the New York Times portfolio review with our very earliest work, which has been all kind of discarded. And um, I got in and I was like, oh, wow. So then like really the first time, like I maybe showed a friend or two that I felt like were very like queer and like very like accepting. And then I, um, I had like one... Uh, friend that or two friends or something I was skyping with from school and it was all kind of a secret and then I got into the New York Times portfolio review and I was like I was like okay so that this work is saying something different that maybe needs to be said and then 
that was like the first time I showed it was like to these like in a kind of a public way I guess it's it's been easier for me than it might seem at first glance because in some ways the photos are very very personal but in a lot of ways they're not they're really they're not like I don't feel particularly exposed put it that way because really what we're doing is we're exploring what gender kind of means within photography within images and it's not like it's not like a tell-all of myself which is nice and and really the thing that is so interesting about it I think is that it's it was in letting go I kind of let go of the whole idea that I had a gender identity that could be revealed to the world that there was a sort of real me that could be photographed and actually I don't believe that people have like an essence of their identity let alone one that could be captured Mm. in two dimensions but instead there's this kind of constant reinvention constant playfulness of how the decisions you make how you present yourself how you feel in the moment that can change and that can kind of go back and forth between genders, between attitudes towards the world, and the pictures are kind of in that space and they move around a lot. Um, so they're actually, they're fun to talk about and they're fun to look at. And they're as much, they're as personal to Lissa as they are to me. They're as much about how she sees gender and how she has experienced femininity and experienced growing up as a woman, which is something that I didn't have, of course. Yeah, you you really just wrapped uh, the duality of photography right up right there, right? The the real and the representation. Yeah, I think what comes across in the work and in hearing you talk about like the this first idea of the reveal on the train saying, "Oh, I you know I wear dresses at home." On one hand, you could have uh, you know, Lisa could have been like, "Oh, well, I, this is sounds like a great documentary project. I'll come over to your house and watch you, you know, make breakfast and you know, whatever. Walk around your apartment wearing your dress." Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe you tried that at the beginning. But the photographs that are out there in the world are much more these constructed realities that the the character who's in those photos, the beautiful boy mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. goes through so many transformations that it's beyond you know one individual like it doesn't come across as oh here's one person who happens to be you know that lives in all these fabulous Mm -hmm. places and is you know going across the world and has you know uh, an incredible collection of clothes it it comes across as these are different explorations and different you know uh, you know exploring stuff from the history of photography exploring you know different levels of fantasy and everything is mixed in there and I think Mm -hmm. that but that probably also makes it, as you were saying, is part of why, even though you can identify with some of it, it still, you know, doesn't feel like this is BJ. It's, you know, mm-hmm. part of your collaboration, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, we've called it an autobiography of our fantasies. And I think that's a good, that, because um, it is very real and it is very personal. It's not just some construction. It's very intimate to our desires. And I think that one of the key things that, Lissa understands or understood that I didn't understand before we started this project was that our identities are so shaped by the images that we see in the movies, in magazines, on the internet now, 
um, and that our whole lives were bombarded with images and depictions and narratives and that they really shape us, not in like a superficial way, but actually much more than I think the average person understands they're being shaped. And so therefore going back in and making your own images and constructing them and really thinking about how they're constructed and how you can manipulate them is kind of like hacking the universe or something <laughs> like it is very powerful and very empowering yeah and i feel like a way you like an, like there are other relationships especially in film like if you think of like with cassavetes and jenna rollins or early fellini films when he was working with um, his wife julietta like that they were partnering to on this exploration together or like bergman you know like and his partners. Um, so I think that we're kind of exploring this together with BJ as my muse. I think that a lot of uh, like Cassavetti's films, like that's really Jenna Rollins playing all those characters, but it's really Jenna Rollins, you know, like, and that's, I think in particular with his films, you get that sense that this is, you see this woman over a long period of time experiencing all these different women. And, um, but it's still her experiencing them, that she's always present. And I think that that's kind of like what I feel like with BJ is like um, kind of like being an actress and, and being able to have the privilege of being the director and looking and like being the, con the person kind of constructing these things and getting to kind of like look at um, and enjoy and like have a partner that like wants to help me achieve this kind of goal of creating art is like really really rare. But so in, in that uh, um, comparison that you made to to Cassavetes and General and um, and Fellini, you are also letting BJ be the a collaborator in the in the project in terms of not it's not a an overtly director subject relationship. It is. BJ also participating in what the image is going to look like. Yeah, I mean, I think that, let's say, like, with Fellini, like, he chose all the costumes and the art direction and the story, you know, but I think that it's important. I mean, I, I find that, let's say, let's look at a more um, still photography example, like um, Lee Miller and Man Ray or something, like, how did her ability to kind of like be vulnerable, to be present, to understand the ideas, to kind of delve into the, the mission of the art, like how did, was that a big gift? How could he have been able to pr produce those things without someone who could feel comfortable in that role, which is quite hard because BJ does have to kind of let go of BJ's ego and like whatever, you know, mission that he or relationship that BJ wants to have in the world, like to kind of let go of that in order to make this, you know, art that has like a different purpose than, you know, this, this isn't a, a headshot, you know, this is something that's, that's bigger than us. So like to be with someone who feels comfortable with that is like a huge gift and is so important to be able to make art and that women for so long 
were muses and were in that role and um, believed in art and believed in in that process. And I feel like that this work kind of like shows how important those people were, that maybe this art couldn't have happened unless they had an understanding of how to like respond and how to um, let themselves go um, inside of it. And that that is like an art form in itself and should kind of like be respected and revered because like I feel like there are more artists looking to like have their name on something than there are people who can really give the gift of like letting go and and participating in a way and kind of like being a vessel for those fantasies and those people are like so rare and special and um BJ just has like an openness that I just I just feel grateful for every day I just don't know like I mean a lot of those filmmakers we look at is art directors like they I don't think they could have found their voice unless they had someone there who like were, was patient enough mm-hmm. and something that I feel or actually that I know for a fact because I've done it is that being in front of the camera is really a creative act too and it requires or it's an act of creation and creativity and there's something that of a photograph of a person is created by a subject and a photographer working together collaboratively and the subject's creativity is usually not really acknowledged uh it's seen as the artist capturing something as opposed to the muse or the model handing something over and i think that that dynamic is so wrapped up in the gender dynamics of the history of art that just the fact of switching the genders makes people suddenly question it a little more but i i mean we the photographs are a collaboration in that we talk endlessly about our interests and our fantasies and our desires and we have these kind of shared fantasies that we build together but ultimately my contribution to the art is um as a model and as a muse not as and which is a creative thing mm-hmm. um but i i mean i'm not the artist it's not an artistic collaboration in the sense that i think some people maybe even want it to be <laughs> but i'm much more interested in that and i'm very interested in seeing the role that muses and models have played in the history of art that gets kind of written off because it is uh something you have to learn how to do in addition to maybe have some aptitude for like anything else um and it's not easy hmm. yeah i mean a lot of art making comes down to luck right and uh maybe that conversation on the train you know that'd be a good good segue maybe lissa to talk about because you you know you're presented with this and you immediately think oh this could be a photograph. I could, this is something I could photograph. So what, what's your history and background in photography? And do you want to just bring us, uh, give us a little fill in some background information on that? Yeah. So, um, I went to undergrad at the Art Institute of Boston. Now it's Leslie University. Leslie University had already bought the school when I started there. Um, but now it's Leslie College of Arts and Design. And that was a really great school. I mean, I... Did you move to Boston for that? Or? Yeah, okay. I grew up um, in a really small town um, in the Finger Lakes area upstate. 
And um, there it's was a really small town, like <laughs> like two villages combined um, equaled 50 kids in my graduating class. And I wow. went to kindergarten with them. But it was kind of in the vicinity of the Rust Belt and about 40 minutes away from Rochester. So like once a year, we'd go to the Eastman Museum and I would see like really incredible stuff. And I think that's I think seeing all the that museum is like not just an art museum. It's really looking at technology. And there were, there were always really great technology exhibits there at that. And, and, you know, I was able to make cyanotypes and zoetropes and all these kind of like magical, like, like kind of like feel the magic of, of photography at a really young age through, um, the, the little children's resource center. <laughs> and, um, I mean, to have that, like to be in a, such a small isolated, town you know like kind of partially pre-internet and then partially post-internet and that was really important and I, I like picked up a man ray book and I was like looking at like pictures of Barbette and stuff like that and I was like why don't I have friends like this and I remember like putting makeup and stuff on my friend Randy and like taking him out somewhere or like putting makeup on my sister like she was kiki or something and like my mom being like oh my god she looks like <laughs> She's like 10 years old, but she looks 40 and like she's been on drugs. I'm like, yeah, that's a good photo. Um, so success. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I got into school and I didn't know what I was doing. Like I didn't know how to like really develop film or like I was like really struggling. But I had a perfectionism that like where I was able to really excel in that school because it was a very like rigorous and very technical school and I think it's really it was a wonderful experience wonderful undergrad experience like you would have to have like 20 perfectly printed images on the wall every every week not even like every other week and I would have to like throw out images that were just good like if an image that was was just good um visually and like compositionally and color wise that wasn't enough like what was the next it needs to be good beyond that needs to say something more and that would get like thrown out like a really beautiful image um so I kind of came from that kind of like rigorous background you know I did really well after school I had a I got signed on with a gallery in Boston right away and was kind of like racking up attention and awards early on but I um, kind of didn't feel like ready at all, and I didn't understand it, and I didn't. I felt like I had performed something as a perfectionist that I had performed. Like I figured out how to make good pictures, and I figured out how to talk about them. But I felt like a trained monkey almost <laughs> in a way. Like, but that wasn't any fault of my school. That was just a result of my own personality. So I just. Um, when I went into grad school SVA, I kind of took mega risks that like, I think like everyone was like, what are you doing? Like, like I just saw your ad in photograph magazine, you're getting these awards. Now you're doing this like really like, like art that does not look good. Like, you know, like, like what are you, why are you throwing away this opportunity that you've had? And, you know, it was really hard. I felt like I let a lot of people down who were supporting me, but I was like this technical technically interesting images has some of the absurdity that I see in the world but I'm not really getting at something I want to live with forever even if it takes the risk of 
never having that attention again. Like I just can't, I just couldn't live with myself. So then I did some really experimental things in school that I don't think, I think very few people like liked. <laughs> um, and, and then after school, I just uh, started working in archives. Like I worked for um, the Burns Archive, uh, which is a archive of like, it's mostly you known for postmortem and crime and war photography, medical photography. And then I worked at the city museum for a while in the archives, really looking at the great collection there, which is mostly vernacular. I started collecting vernacular photography. And then um, I have the job here now. So I kind of like went on my own little path just with, uh, I don't know, it was a big risk, you know, because I, I ended up um, coming back around. But it was kind of a risk to kind of do things that other people really didn't find were the right choice. Um, but then I think it worked out for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of, that is a, probably the number one risk of any kind of success is that then there's an expectation that you'll continue in that vein and keep doing the thing, right? I mean, I mean, even now, right? If the, your next body of work doesn't have BJ in it, there'll be some people like, wait a minute, where's BJ part two? You know, like, why, you know, why isn't the next thing, you know, you guys going into space or something else, you know, whatever. So uh, that. Stay tuned for space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. for, uh... BJ loves space. <laughs> there you go. Uh, heard here first. But that's that, that to turn your back on that or even to have an experimental phase. And um, when. Uh, Michael and I both went to uh, Columbia for graduate school, and I think we both, just by luck of the years, kind of avoided the really rough, like, hot spot of when all of the galleries and dealers were trying to, like, literally break into the studios up at Columbia to try to, like, sign up people. But because of the professionalism now of, of master's programs, so many people are afraid to experiment or do something else like different than what they had in their portfolio when they got in or, or feeling like it's their, you know, their uh, debutante debut. And if they don't do the, the perfect version in their thesis show that they're never going to be taken seriously or signed up with a gallery or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really rejected that. <laughs> and I... I think that one thing that helped me was having a success to reject. And then another thing that helped me was having, like, kind of stepping back and knowing that everyone has their time and it comes in cycles. And that when someone is successful right after school, that's their time. But then there's going to be a period where they're going to have to create more work. And then it'll be your time. And that you can't predict when that's going to happen or how many years that's going to take. But you just need to keep making work and keep questioning things and keep kind of exploring. And I think, like, for me, I really didn't want to make work that looked like things that were in the galleries. I didn't want to make... Like, uh, I think there was, like, this kind of deadpan portrait style that was really big at the time, influenced by Alex Soth, and I think that that was really getting into galleries and getting published quite easily. But I think as someone who's interested in, like, the history of photography, I was, like, looking to create something that maybe was a little more uncomfortable stylistically, um, but that wasn't going to be easy. And also, I was questioning gender and sexuality in school, and not everyone's comfortable with that. And a lot of times people think if you're a woman looking at sexuality that 
you're not a feminist or something. There was like, there's been a lot of evolution of these ideas that has been exponential since that time. I graduated yeah. in 2009. Was, was that the, uh, the cabinet secret work or the absence portrait? What, or did that work come later? Um, yeah, so the cabinet secret work, and I also did an installation that was a sex researcher's office, and I was um, kind of delving into how, techno- how people use technology to um, reconstruct their identities and how people use the technology of photography by looking at vernacular images on the Internet. Like um, people who are um, using YouTube videos to change their bodies and stuff like that and kind of um, linking it actually to um, the 19th century um, because right away in the 19th century, I mean, there was not only like literature like Frankenstein and all these different kind of fears and stuff that were, ha- that were coming up at the turn of the last century when electricity was introduced, um, of people kind of like having all these fears and fantasies but desires to use technology to change their body because that's one thing you can't change. You're born into your body. And um, people are always using technology and photography to um, change these things and kind of like uh, looking at, yeah, people who had real dolls and they were photographing them as if they were alive, kind of like um, the photographs downstairs. And then also looking at people who are trying to become dolls, like not even just women, but dolls, actually. So it was kind of freaky to a lot of people. But now I feel like there's been an accelerated conversation yeah, about gender Snapchat and sexual. Snapchat yeah. filters and everything else, yeah. right? I mean, like from putting uh, animal ears on to you to uh, trying out the different ways of the beauty filters and all of the kind of stuff. People are, are going nuts with it now, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that it was hard for people to see like how these kind of extreme examples were just like reiterations of things that everyone does in a way. And uh, as, since we are speaking here at the Museum of Sex where you're working, that there's also what you brought, you, you were getting at that there's, um, I don't know, there's a way that people, maybe because of the taboo of it, they, they have a hard time like, taking uh discussions about sex and sexuality seriously in a way or like or uh, you know like even having a place like the museum of sex i mean it probably should be something that in every city there should be something like that just to force these conversations or make people see it and uh you took us on a tour of all the uh, other floors as we went through. And it's also interesting just to see who comes here and who's like attracted to the idea of like, if they're in the neighborhood to come by and, you know, see what is on display here. And uh, it's such an important part of everybody's life. And yet it's still under the surface for the most part, right? Unless something like art makes it uh, force the conversation. Yeah. I think that working here and coming from an arts background, I mean, artsy just did, a big article saying like the museum of sex is now an edgy art space has been transformed to an edgy art space. You know, I think art is a great surrogate to kind of take some of these ideas seriously because the museum has been doing like really important work for a long time before I got here, like giving academics who are not being taken seriously or don't have a voice to like visualize some of their research in an exhibition form, like, you know, for years this um, work has been happening here. But I think that um, having art that people have identified as being acceptable in other institutions, let's say like with known unknown, like there's, oh, it's like, okay, here's a Henry Darger here. 
I've seen this in another museum or here's a Morton Bartlett, like this is in the SF MoMA. You know, these these artists have been shown in other museums, you know, so they're good somehow. So then that was kind of like a gateway. Like Bill Bernstein's work was good, you know, because I think that everyone was looking at the 70s and it said something bigger politically. And they're just great photos, bottom line. But I think that having a show like that where people be like, okay, so they have a, a work of art that was somewhere else. And then now I think it's really wonderful having the um, Not Safe for Work female gaze show because I think it's it's all women kind of like questioning sexuality in a way that might have been marginalized even in universities before. I mean, there's I mean, you both coming from photo schools have probably like know the um the stereotype of like the freshman girl looking at her sexuality or her body and how that's like um very immature art, you know, like and uh, then they're stopped, and then they go on to their mature work where they don't look at those things anymore, and that maybe is associated with being young and attractive. Right. So there's all these kind of stereotypes, and then, but really there's this universe of imagery of women being looked at. There's this universe of, of material, and how do you deal with that as a woman? Like, how do you feel about that? And... What if you do want to be the object of desire? Like, what if you do kind of identify with a male viewer? What, there's all these different, like, complex questions that I feel like have been discouraged, you know, and um, not, and like not honored or taken seriously in an exhibit. Mm -hmm. um, so it was nice to, like, take these people and, like, help them pay for their framing, pay for the printing, like, have it lit properly, have a nice opening, you know, and have people, like, be able to have like a respect a respected space where this isn't a circus of women uh, showing off their bodies for someone else's pleasure. This isn't a circus event. This is like a really a difficult show in a lot of ways. So it's been nice to be in this time where I can have this open relationship with BJ. I can show work like this where it's not like it's it's feminist. It's not a threat to feminine. F feminism, you know, so it's it's really nice. But you know, some of that history of the young student photographing herself, nude self portraits, and things like that. Some of the closing off of that was a reaction to young girls being encouraged, or young women to being encouraged to do uh, self nude, self portrait nudes by uh, professors who had less than noble reasons. I mean, I, I actually rem I'm probably the oldest one here. I, rem I remember a particular professor having an inordinate number of female students doing self-portrait nudes in his class. Oh, and wow. so there was, a, there was a, a backlash against that, just as there was a backlash of professors sleeping with students and, and things like that. Oh, I didn't realize that that was encouraged, because when I was in school, it was more seen as kind of like the immature period <laughs> of <laughs> photography or something. Well, I think yeah. it was all part of a, an evolutionary process, right? And now we're, now we're turning back to it as an important investigation of work, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, I think if you go to Chelsea and you walk around, you're going to find that if people are doing self-portraits, often that uh, they, you know, they conform to, you know, conventional standards of beauty of like what you're seeing, you know, it's not that radically different often than what you would see on an advertisement when you go out down the street, right? I mean, like, so I think there is still... Uh, positive feedback towards like 
people who conform to certain ideals, mm-hmm. like like even and you see it in performance art, you see it everywhere. It's like there, this still is. They're still in the culture and whatever you know the art world and market is. There is positive uh, encouragement towards that still. So I think it's it's something to still be aware of and uh, point out and and of course work against. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think in this show, like the work is definitely like let's say for example, Natalie Crick. She's using a harsh flash. It's all it's very revealing and and difficult work. I mean. She's a conventionally attractive woman and could photograph herself that way, but she's not. She's choosing not to, even though she's using like the tropes that could easily lend themselves to that kind of image making. And there's there's nothing wrong with um, being an attractive woman. I mean, I feel like people are very suspicious of attractive women, and like <laughs> maybe feel like they they got they've got something and they should be punished somehow because they have something valuable that they don't deserve. Um, so I'm definitely not against, like, attractive women, but I'm, yeah, I just think that, I don't know, I guess you have a different perspective, but as a woman kind of exploring these things in school, I found it difficult, like, when I was in school personally, but it could be different from in different time periods. But yeah. we're seeing that turnaround, too, on social media, where, you know, fat shaming was the big cause for a while, and then it became, you know, uh, oh, you're too thin, you're too skinny, you must be anorexic. Why are you trying to please everybody? And so there was there was actually a kind of beauty shaming or a, a thin shaming. So it's it's sort of leveling off in a way on both sides. Yeah, I think like being a woman is like there's always this like or any being in any gender with expectations. There's always this balance like, oh, you're too sexual, or you're not sexual <laughs> enough, you're prude, or you're too overweight it's unhealthy or you're too thin or you know like there's always this like kind of like imaginary perfected area where like oh like you're you don't take care of yourself or you're too vain um and there's you know like there's always this kind of like um balance that you're trying to find that's like maddening really i think one of the things that our work is trying to get at a little is that there's like two levels of it there's the level of a person can never live up to the sort of imagined expectation of their gender. They can never be the perfect woman or the perfect girl or the perfect boy or the perfect man. And so that's one thing to kind of fight against. But then another thing to kind of fight against is just the idea that you are the kind of woman or man or boy or girl that you are. So you could totally fight against the first and not the second. You could say, oh, we should accept every kind of woman and never, you know, hold anyone up to try and be something that they aren't. But for for me, and I think in our work, it's more like, well, what does it even mean to be something at all? No, you can be one kind of woman today and another kind of woman tomorrow. You can be a boy today and a girl tomorrow. You don't have to not only do you not have to hold yourself up to the world standards or society standards, but you don't have to create a standard for yourself either. So we don't often talk about catharsis as much anymore in art, but it seems to me like your collaboration was a huge breakthrough for both of you, right? They're both nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pod- podcast nods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, I just, like, it's so crazy to think you know I think a lot of this was kind of like 
just like struggling for a long time, even through the experiments or whatever. I mean, the art I was making probably wasn't even good. And that's fine, you know. I think that I was struggling to like... I think it was good. <laughs> fine. I was like... I was trying to like find my voice to find a way to express myself. And that I don't know if I didn't have BJ. Like, I don't know if I... If anyone would have been patient enough to listen to me so that I could discover any of these things. And we kind of discovered these things together because we're just patient and open. And that, that was like... I don't even know who I was, like who that was before. It's like this, there's this lyric that really kind of describes it. Um, it's like a Velvet Underground lyric where um, we read saying like, I saw my head rolling, laughing on the ground. The song's called I'm Set Free. And then, and then he says, I'm set free to find a new illusion. And I feel like there's this, this kind of narrative that you live out and then there's this kind of catharsis when you realize that you can rewrite your life, hmm. that everything is kind of like absurd in a construct, and that you see that self and you see that this layer of narrative that comes from your family or the people you went to grad school with or your past relationships and all these kind of layers, but it's not real. Like you are in control of what is real and what's not real. And, like, what happens when you rewrite everything? And we kind of rewrote everything, and it's a bit, like, it feels crazy, but we did. Yeah, I can, I can see how you guys work together so well, because that's pretty much what BJ was just saying, too, in terms of not standardizing your own identity, being able mm -hmm. to say, well, today I'm going to be this. Today I want to do this. And it's, I think it's something that artists and art is uniquely positioned to give to the world and that uh, academics and journalists can't do it <laughs> or you know there's a lot of valuable important things in the world and people in the world politicians can't give it to us you know uh, and it's not to denigrate any of those important professions but I think it is something that can only come from art and a lot of I mean part of how Alyssa helped me was just to you know, get onto Facebook Messenger and start sending me this art and these, you know, it's on YouTube, it's everywhere, you know, if you go to look for it. Um, but I hadn't been exposed to it at all. And I was trying to understand my gender. You know, my big touchstone was like academic writing, queer theory, because I'm an academic and that, you know, is kind of where I was. And I love that. I, I love academic writing about gender. I think it's very important, but it only gets you so far, I think. And you, I mean, I think that you need the art early. Did, did we mention this? Who are you uh, working for right now? Uh, so I'm actually in school. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm getting uh, my PhD at Princeton in uh, colonial American history. Wow. Now that's on how many years of the process is that going to be? Uh, one down, uh, <laughs> five to ten to go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it uh, seems obvious from, uh, well, you probably got encouragement when you showed the work early on when you went to that New York Times portfolio review, but now that the exhibition's been up for several weeks and uh, there's been a flurry of write-ups and positive response to the work, it's, uh, there must be also... Uh, just a level of satisfaction knowing that um, something that you were doing for such personal reasons is res resonating with other people, right? 
Yeah, I just, I think um, it's nice that it's resonating, but it's just so great to be able to have the images in your head out. That is just, I've never like really experienced it as much, like as acutely as like now, like I feel like they got out. Like all this, this like kind of complicated um, mesh of things that I've been holding in there, I was able to express. And I'm glad to get that acknowledgement, but I'm more glad to have like just made the, made the work. Great. Well, thank you so very much for both of you taking the time and for hosting us here at the Museum of Sex and giving us a tour. Yeah, thanks for the tour. That was great. Yeah. So we will link, and of course, in, was it Cleveland you said? No, I've forgotten at the beginning. Oh, yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, if you're, in, yeah. If you're listening and you're in Cleveland, make, make yourself over to that show too, right? Right. And and let's just mention, is, is there something you're also working on at the Museum of Sex that might be coming up? Um, so what's coming up here? There's going to be an Iraqi retrospective. Oh, wow. I'm working on it somewhat. Um, that's going to be coming up in the fall. And yeah, we just have other group shows and stuff that I'll post online. Um, there's like a built, we have like billboards up. <laughs> there's like this cool organization called Save Art Space. And I think you can apply the app. Maybe the application will still be open when this airs. Um, but you should keep an eye out for this organization because they're replacing ads with art and they have open calls that are rolling. Um, so I suggest that people apply because it's a really good thing oh great yeah yeah so we'll link to uh the museum of sex as well and so well thank you that was this has been a great conversation thank, thank you, you thank you bye everyone bye.